I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. That's the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 26. That is also page number 848 of the Pew Bible. If you don't have one, we've got those there in the pew. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that gives us the details of what took place the night Christ was betrayed for a communion service as we observe it. Communion is one of two ordinances that Christ gave the church. The other ordinance is that of believers' baptism. And in most lectionaries, this would be described as a somber service, not unlike that of a funeral. Because the concepts, the things being thought through, sung through, recited through, is or are of a very sober idea. Many churches observe communion or the Last Supper, as some call it, on a quarterly schedule, about four times a year, which is what we do here. Some churches do more. Some churches would argue that you should do less. But I would suggest the idea that quarterly is probably enough that if we don't pay attention, we could become in danger of uh, becoming so familiar with it that we treat it as uh, old hat, as they would say. Because it's just something, we, many of you have done this since you were children. Uh, and, and in fact, if, if the church you attended, if it was this one or another, uh, had what they did written down, it might have been word for word four times a year in your life long enough that if uh, something happened, you could pick up and they could complete it if, if the pastor had to catch a train or something. But I think that's because of our human nature. And maybe something that was mentioned either last week or the week before, I can't remember. Uh, and it might help you to think that even I forget what I say from a week to week. But C.S. Lewis, in writing about the horror of the same old thing, it's just the same old thing again. So if it's just the same old thing, what, what difference does it make? I know this already. Same as in class when the professor says, I'm going to now review, you start thinking about lunch or whatever else because you already know these things. Well, today we need to make sure at the outset that this was put together for the purpose that we rehearse, not just remember, but rehearse so that not only we don't forget the, the, the fact of it all in our brain, but we don't forget the meaning behind it. That's what we don't need to forget or become desensitized to, that it, that it still matters. It's still that precious to us. So if we were going to put communion into the form of a direct question and ask the question, why do we observe communion? And this is for those who perhaps have it's been so long or haven't paid attention or maybe this is new to you. And we want to make sure that we're clear about this for you as well. The question, why do we observe communion, have a communion service about four times a month? The answer to that question would be because of who Christ is and what he has done. 
And that's the simplified version of the question. Because who God is, even John said, if all the things were written about his son Jesus, I suppose the world couldn't hold the books that should be written. So that's not a small answer. Who Christ is and then what he has done. What he's done is a shorter question than that or answer. And that is he came to this earth sent by his father to absorb the punishment for sin that is deserved by us because we sinned in the garden. God said, if you sin, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That was the punishment for sin. We sinned, so the punishment is fair and just, and God sweeps no sin under the rug. Somebody's paying, and in that case, it's us. Unless, of course, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is God's son. That's who he is. And what he's done is died in our place on the cross to satisfy his father's punishment for sin. And when we say we're saved, what we're saying is we're saved from Christ's father's punishment on sin. That's the precise way to define what do you mean saved. So, when Jesus says, after the first communion service, this do in remembrance of me, he's saying, don't forget me. Keep doing this as often as you do it, more or less or whenever. Don't forget me, who I am and what I did for you. That's the purpose of what we are going to do in just a bit. Communion is a reminder Christ's death on the cross to save sinners from his father's promised punishment. So if we were to turn to 1 Corinthians, don't do that just yet. I had you turn to Matthew 26. We're going to read out of 1 Corinthians a little later. But that's the passage of scripture that we usually go to when we're observing communion because that's where we receive our, our service order, our instructions. This is how you do this. Paul is telling the church in Corinth how to do it. And the reason why he's telling the church in Corinth how to do it is because he told them before, but they stopped doing it the way he told them to do it, the way he was told by the Lord to do it. And they had been disobedient. Uh, They had been misappropriating the Lord's Supper in ways where at the feast part of it, where they'd actually eat a a meal. We don't do that. Uh, Some had plenty of food and some didn't have any food. And uh, it, it was a, a, a thing that was causing division within the church. It, it was bad. And one day, for communion, we'll study through that. But he writes this to correct the disobedience. And he gives us a few details about communion that we don't have from the Gospels. But what I'd like to do for us today, and try to look at this from a fresh perspective before we, before we honor the Lord as he has asked us to do, I'd like to go back to the Gospels to study the first communion service. Because what we read in 1 Corinthians is how they'd been doing communion since it had been begun by Christ himself. So what we're going to do in Matthew 26 is to look at what took place with Jesus and his 12 disciples. They're in the upper room. We're familiar with this if we're familiar with the Easter story and what took place leading up to his death on the cross. And what we'll find is that communion as we know it What we're going to do today was tied directly to another reminder in the Bible, in the Old Testament. 
which is very similar. Because if this is something that you are to do, and it's going to not just involve your brain, but it's going to involve something that you eat that has a specific taste. You can smell it. You can see it. You're going to rehearse these words. You're going to be hearing it. It's almost involving all of the senses in order to maximize the, the purpose of it so you don't forget what Jesus did for you and who he is. Well, in the Old Testament, they had something and much more elaborate than what we do. It was simplified by Jesus himself. But what we're going to find is this amazing similarity between these two. Some of you already know where I'm going. But let's look at 17 of chapter 26. This is Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread. That was a a, a calendar holiday for the Jews during Passover week. The disciples came to Jesus saying, "Where Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? There it is. He said, go into the city to a certain man. Say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when Jesus, or when it was evening, he, that's Jesus, reclined at the table with the twelve. So here's the first point of this message this morning. The first communion that we see in the Bible at the Last Supper was Christ's last Passover. That what we have as communion was taken out of what Jews had called Passover since the night they left Egypt after the tenth plague and went out into the wilderness and up against the Red Sea that was opened and closed on the, on the, the Egyptian and, and their army. Uh, if you remember the Ten Commandments, the movie, you know all about this. It's very dramatic. But at the, at the, when they're getting ready to, to leave, and the, the way the, the movie is put together, it, it's dark. And you've got this green-looking cloud that represented the death angel moving through the streets. And you hear the, the screams of mothers realizing their firstborns are dead. And what it meant for the doors to be smeared with the blood of a lamb that had been kept up for a number of days. And on the top part of the door as well. And and all the contents of the house were covered and the death angel would pass over. And then they were told uh, to eat certain things like bitter herbs to remind them of their bondage. Those remembered it quite well. They were in bondage that night until they left. And then uh, later salt water to describe the tears that they would dip some of these things in. And bread, unleavened bread, to, to represent the, the haste they left the city in. Not time for the bread to rise. And all of these things symbolic were preserved in Passover so that the children's children of the children who left Egypt would never forget, though they weren't alive when it happened, what happened, who God was And why or what he did for the children of Israel when he took them out of Egypt. That's what Passover is all about. And that's what Jesus and the disciples were doing in that upper room. Communion came out of Passover. And just to keep this in your mind as we move along. This is unfamiliar to us. I don't think folks in Wake Chapel are very Jewish. That type of thing interests me 
Sometimes, even when I've been over there, what they eat tastes good to me. For a few days, and then when everybody went to the Dead Sea, I went to McDonald's. <laughs> because at the Dead Sea, you could still get a quarter pounder with cheese on it. Because in Jerusalem, there's a quarter pounder, which is called a, a Royale there. Say, don't do the metric system thing. Um, but no cheese. They don't put their meat and their cheese together. That's not kosher. But all that to say, we're looking at this as foreigners, as guests, trying to figure out what's going on. But make no mistake, the men in the upper room knew exactly how to do this. They've been doing this since they were kids. They did this once a year, and it was a big deal. And they knew more about Passover than we know about communion. So if Jesus is going to change anything in this, it's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And that's exactly what's going to happen. I won't go into the depth or particulars of the Passover meal itself because, again, I'm a, I'm a novice at that. But I want to highlight enough of it to mention a couple of things that Jesus changes that will make our understanding of communion make a lot more sense, I do believe. Now, the list of things on the menu for a Passover meal included six foods along with wine to drink. We only retain two of those, seven things. Unleavened bread and a cup of wine. In our case, grape juice. Um, by the time we read Jesus saying what he says in Matthew's gospel, we need to understand that the first part of that Passover meal, the part that you saw in the movie The Ten Commandments, where you had the bitter herbs and salt water and the shank of a bone, all that... That was done earlier, and that's not what they ate as their meal. That, that was symbolic. But once that's done, the table is cleared, and they all eat an actual dinner. I need to use the word dinner, not meal, so we don't get confused. And it was a big meal. And while they were eating that big meal, part of that unleavened bread that was stuck between a couple of cloths, there were three of them, that would be hidden in the house somewhere by the head of the house. And then the, the youngest of the family, or the children, would go find it in the house later and bring it back as the dinner is winding down. And that bread would be broken up into pieces, distributed amongst the people in the room, and they would eat it. And it represented the sacrificial Passover lamb that was killed in order to shed the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. That's what that was for in Passover. And this is what we see Jesus picking up the story and look, verse 26. This was very much a Jewish Passover meal that they were doing. And there's little doubt that Jesus would follow this tradition on the night of the last Passover meal. That part of, of the, the symbolic part was over. They were eating their dinner and that piece had been hidden and had been taken back. And look at verse 26. Now as they were eating. Did ever that confuse you when you, as they were eating? So they just pulled a little piece off their, their garlic bread from dinner and used that? No. That was reserved and retained. They'd been eating their dinner, but now this is brought back, broken up, passed around. They all know what it's for. It represents the Passover lamb that was killed. It's bloodshed. So the, 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 the angel passed over them. Well, Jesus took bread after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
That's the first difference. That's what some of the men in the room might have looked up and looked at him and went, what? No, this is a Passover lamb. No, he says, this is my body. As if to say, I am the Passover lamb. I'm the final sacrifice. The Passover lamb only covered the sins. Postponed judgment. I'm going to take the judgment. And I'm going to pay for your sin. Once for all. I am the sacrifice for sin. Then Jesus takes a cup of wine. And in the Passover meal, there were actually four cups of wine, much more elaborate than what we do today. And they were poured at different times. Two of them had been poured previously in the first part of the meal that had already taken place. So this is the third cup. And each one of these cups represented something specific. The first two represented sanctification. That means setting something apart. We call this a sanctuary. It's set apart from other things we do. We had our upward ministry yesterday. Ten games of basketball we played down there in the Family Life Center. Because this room is set apart from things like that for things like this. That's what sanctification is. just means set apart. Then the second cup was judgment. And that represented that death angel moving through and punishing evil that wasn't covered by the blood. This third cup that Jesus now is pouring, this is the cup of redemption, which means forgiveness. Price has been paid, so the one whom it was paid for is off the hook, right? And this cup would be represented by... Wine, which is the blood of the vine, which represented the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, that enabled the forgiveness of the sins of the people inside the house, right? So look at verse 27. And he took a cup, this is the third cup of Passover, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, not the Passover lamb's blood. The blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know how this could be any more explicit. Jesus is removing these things from Passover. He's giving it to Christians and saying, You no longer need to remember what happened in Egypt. From now on you'll remember what happens tomorrow on Calvary. Where I pay for the sins of the world myself forever. That's what this means. After the third cup, and here we're going back to what Jews would do and what the disciples would expect, this cup of redemption, the whole family would sing a hymn. And we're going to do that when we get finished before we leave. In this case, it was called the Hallel. It was traditionally Psalm 118. It was a messianic psalm, and that's what they sang. And then there's one more thing to do after they sang, and that was the fourth cup. And the fourth cup was called the cup of praise or the cup of celebration and that had to do with their leaving Egypt and having been uh, redeemed or saved from their bondage but in this case I want you to look at the next verse which is verse 29 because Jesus is going to make his third change to what they had been doing so long verse 29 I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine that's wine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He said this after the third cup. So he's not planning to drink the fourth cup. It, he's going to omit that. Or it's, he's going to postpone it. 
Verse 30, and when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that was it. They left the, the room. So the Passover feast is over. So the question is, why would Jesus... He changed two things, changed their meaning, but he omitted one as if to do it later. Why would he do that? Well, the reason is because his work was not yet complete. This is before the crucifixion. That would happen the next day, before his resurrection. And he told them, I'm not going to do this again until we're together. What happens theologically is described in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, that's the Old Testament sacrificial system, to take away sins. They were only meant to cover them. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take sins away. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he is. The right hand of God, making intercession for us, his children. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if he's holding off on the fourth cup because his work is not yet complete, well, in a matter of hours, his work was complete. And in a matter of days, he's at the right hand of his father. But there's one in verse 29 that's not there yet. He's saying, you, I'll drink this with you in my Father's kingdom. Does you mean those 12 men, 11 at that point, or does that mean them and us? I think it means them and us. And this is where we have to use our imagination. But I don't think it violates any scripture. I think it makes pretty good sense. The only thing holding up the fourth cup, which is known as the cup of celebration is a celebration. And I believe at a pointed time, an appointed time, a time that Jesus doesn't know, the angels don't know, because he told his disciples, nobody knows when I'm coming back, but the Father. So the Father is going to look to his son and say, it's time. Go get your bride. It's time for a celebration. And we'll do the last part of this. Jews, Gentiles, everybody in between, together. Not as families littered all over this earth, but together. Where all of it will make complete sense, no matter what our background, our education. That's the way I think this all comes together. So, we need to transition over into uh, our observing of the Lord's table. And what I want to read to you now is something from 1 Corinthians 11. These are things we're familiar with. And in a few moments, the deacons who are going to be serving will join me here on the platform. But before that, we need to read a few things and then have a time uh, of personal examination and prayer before we begin. Paul explains these things to us that we're going to read here in a few moments. And then at the end, or afterwards, in verse 27, he gives us this warning. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, 
And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning or understanding, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And remember, he's talking to a group of people at a church who had abused this and turned it into really a social gathering that was ostracizing the poor among them. So he's being uh, very specific in his warning that this is important. This is something our Lord asked us to do to remember him. So there are a few things that would get in the way of that. That would be someone who's got unconfessed sin in their lives. They're living in sin. The very thing that caused Jesus to need to sacrifice himself on the cross for us. That would be to drink judgment on yourself. Or someone who is not a believer. They're not there yet. Haven't accepted Jesus as their Savior. Haven't declared him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, that would be not understanding this. In other words, this is for the family of God. And here we don't use closed communion where you have to be a member. But we do say that you must be a member of the family of God. Uh, that you are saved and you know it. And then for, for children, uh, I usually exercise extreme caution there because all of this matters most when we understand it and at a certain age there's not understanding of what's going on I usually would tell the tabernacle if your child hasn't paid attention in the service yet it's probably a good idea to let that plate pass by there will be time to teach them and it will be meaningful them in time but until that point it's better to let it pass So let's take a moment of time to prepare our hearts for this. This is time for you to pray, to ask the Lord to search your heart. Is there anything unconfessed that you uh, need to confess before we proceed? That's what we're going to do. In a moment, I'll come back, ask the deacons to join me on the platform, and we'll begin. But until then, take this as your time of, of private prayer. You can stay at your seat. You can use these altars if you want to completely up to you. Again, reading from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me going to ask David McCreary to pray for bread. Let us pray. Lord, as we take this bread, we remember that you are the bread of life. You feed our souls and nourish our hearts and give us sustenance to run the spiritual race that you set out before us. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself up on the cross to pay the greatest price of all for our sin. And thank you also for rising again triumphant over death as Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and our beloved Savior. Amen. And Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup and after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Gary Holt to pray for the cup. Pray with me, please. Our Father, as we partake of this cup this morning, we pray that we might be mindful of the price that you paid for our salvation. Father, as Pastor has just mentioned, your blood was shed not only to, uh, not just to cover our sin, but to take our sin away. And for that, we are eternally grateful. We pray now, Father, that you might bless this cup and we'll be careful to give you the praise for it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. The scripture says, the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament, new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul continues, For as oft as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you do proclaim, you do remember the Lord's death till he come. There's only one thing we have left to do, and that was from Matthew 26:30. And before they left, in their case, for the Mount of Olives, they sang a hymn. And traditionally here, before we leave after communion, we sing a hymn. I believe we'll have this on the screen. So let's all stand together. We'll be dismissed with this last hymn.